Welcome to the Frederick Annie Public Library podcast. We hope everyone's Thanksgiving holiday was super great yes, and that you was. made it through Black Friday shopping if you win. No. No, I didn't either. <laughs> All right. So, I think Yeah. No. Yeah. No. 
So mine is the original. It's the Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite book is actually a series. Yeah. I like the Winter Street series by um, Ellen Hildebrand. Yes. I love that series. And it's so, it's a great series because, like, the first book is a continuation. It's not a continuation, but it mentions characters from other books. Yeah. So it kind of ties in that whole Nantucket area. Yeah. And I love that that set, it just brings you closer closer to the the characters. characters. Yeah. I like reading that series. All right, so my favorite book is actually a kid's book that I read with my kid. Yeah. So it's called Stick Man, and it's by Julia Donaldson, who also does The Gruffalo, The Gruffalo's Child, like all of those books. Gotcha. So this one is about, um, obviously, Stick Man is a stick. Yeah. And he gets carried away by a dog who thinks it's obviously <laughs> just a stick. stick. So he's gets farther and farther and farther home yeah. from home when all he wants to do is spend Christmas with his sick lady love and yeah. his children three. Oh so God. he has to make his way back in time for Christmas. Yeah. And it's the wild adventure that he goes on. Yeah. It's so good. It's yeah. and my that kids love like a great it. Way. it is. Oh God. So um y'all need to share with us your favorite yes. book. And movies. We'd love to hear we it. We have a ton of Christmas movies to check out. And I think most branches at this point have pulled out all their Christmas books. We did yesterday. Yeah. We did yesterday. We have so many winter and holiday and snow themed books out yep. there. So stop by the branches, pick up your favorite book or movie. Yep. And, and, and even if you can't find yeah. it, we'll find it. Oh, yeah. It. There's. I know last year this gentleman always comes in and he does not know the title of it, but he can tell you what it's about and maybe a couple of characters. Yeah. And every single time I'm like just trying to find it and I always find it yeah. just off of like three descriptions. Yep. Yeah. And he's like, I don't understand. Yeah. I was like, Librarians are magic, that's all I have to say. Um, let's talk about some programming that we have coming up over the next couple of weeks. So there's a big thing happening at Bo Banks. They're changing some stuff. So um, we are changing our story time just for twice a month for until March. So until March, twice a month for instead of, instead of every what was it Tuesday? Every Tuesday. Yeah. So it's going to be every other Tuesday. Nice. And they'll and they'll put up the correct dates and times. Yeah. On their it should door. be still until four, and then once we get past March, we'll probably put it earlier. Yeah. For the summertime. Gotcha. Another big one that's coming up is we're going to have some special guest characters, December 7th, 8th, and 9th. Awesome. We're going to have superhero story time. So fun. So this story time we're going to be taking place at the Newport, the Western, and the Beaufort branch at their normal story time hour. Um, Westerns, it's going to be the Thursday story hour. Um, and then Wednesday at Newport and at Beaufort on, on Friday. And there will be a special appearance by somebody who wears a cape and has ears for days. (laughs) What is that? Oh, my goodness. I guess you'll have to come and find out. Um, And then after that, um, Beaufort has a special guest that's coming in on December 9th from 9 to 12. It's um, a young lady named Kat that works for the National Park Service. And she's been coming in every couple of weeks, and she's been showing off different items that they have um, and just expressing 
how the National Park Service works and just giving kids more details and, yeah. and adults more details about the National Park. So far, she's brought stuff about owls. Um, apparently, she had like owl bones and yeah. like an animatronic owl and That's all that kind cool. of like detail. And she even brought a whale bone. Yeah. That's like, pretty big. Right. That's I awesome, though. Whole table. Oh, yeah. Still <laughs> depending, I guess. That's true. So, um, definitely got by and see her. That's December 9th from 9 to 12. Um, you want to talk about then, the Down East Yeah, so then at Down East, on December 7th, um, from 10 to 11, they're going to be doing a no so Moan Day. So, if you Fort Mason. 
And um, as Paul Branch, he is the park ranger and historian of Fort Macon. So he definitely has some good information about that and just the surrounding history that is over there at Fort Macon. So we're going to let Anthony take it away for a little while, and then we'll see you on the other side. Bye. Today's guest is going to be a park ranger and historian from Fort Macon. His name is Paul Branch, and he's here to tell us all about the history of that magnificent site located on Bogue Banks. Fort Macon was the second state park to grace the state of North Carolina, and it has a fascinating history to go along with it. But, like I said, I'm no expert. So, without further ado, here's Paul to tell us all about it. My name is Paul Branch. I'm park ranger and historian at Fort Macon State Park. It's nice to have you here today. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about what would lead up to when Fort Macon was first built? Okay. The significance of Beaufort Inlet as uh, being something that would be needed to guard against attack and so forth, you have to set yourself back, way back in colonial days when uh, we were just getting started off as a colony. There was always a danger of enemy forces sailing into the harbor and attacking the towns and so forth back forth, uh, you know, back around the inlet and everything. Um, twice in its history, Fort Macon was attacked. Okay, I mean, <laughs> let me back up here. Twice <laughs> in its history, uh, uh, Beaufort was attacked and captured. Uh, first, it was captured in 1747 by the Spanish, and then in 1782, British ships sailed in, captured the town, held it for a couple of weeks, pillaged, plundered, did the whole bit, and everything. So it stressed or showed the need for having some sort of defense to keep enemy forces from being able to just sail right in at leisure and attack and do mischief and so forth. So that's where we get sort of the uh, the basis for how do we defend against enemy attack? How can we keep enemy ships out of the inlet from sailing in and attacking us? Well, there were before Fort Macon was built, there were two other attempts to uh, to get fortifications on Bogue Point. Uh, Bogue Point, the west, the, the eastern end of uh, Bogue Island, uh, Bogue Banks, uh, was judged to be the best place where fortifications could be built. And uh, the purpose being to have a fort there with some sort of artillery, and if an enemy ship tried to sail in, why, boom, we've got them. So uh, eastern end of Bogue Point, the first attempt to build a fort there was in 1756, the uh, beginning of the French and Indian War. The colonial government appropriated money for several forts along the North Carolina coast, one being a fort to guard Beaufort Harbor. And um, the fort was partially completed, funds ran out, it was never finished. The colonial assembly was sort of like, where did all this money go? Because the fort didn't finish. And, so they called accounts due, and one of the contractors had uh, had all his receipts and so forth, so he was fine. The other contractor didn't, and they couldn't figure out where all the money went, and no more was ever appropriated. So Fort Dobbs, partially finished, never came into existence. So thereafter, the, um, the inlet remained unguarded through the American Revolution. That's how the, the British were able to sail in uh, again. It was the last battle of the last major operation of the American Revolution. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. 1782, this is after Cornwallis's British Army had surrendered and we thought the war was over. 
the British still had a presence on the coast and they were sending fleets and ships up to do raids and so forth and one of those uh, raids came into Beaufort Harbor and captured the town and pillaged and plundered for a couple of weeks before they left. So uh, this was the last major operation of the American Revolution. Pretty cool. Again, showing we need defense. Yep, <laughs> defense seems uh, pretty important. Then. Yes. So the, uh, the war ended. Um, the next attempt to actually build something there came about at the um, before the War of 1812. 1808, the United States government went on a fort building binge. They had several systems of defense. The first system was various forts and so forth, some of the larger harbors and that had fortifications built at them. We did not have one of the, this is called the first system. We didn't have a first system fort. Those forts were inadequate, so the second system, which came about beginning in 1808, why Beaufort Harbor got a fort under the second system. And uh, this was what was called Fort Hampton, small eight-gun fort, again on the eastern point of Bogue Banks. And it was built, completed uh, 1809, and was occupied intermittently over the times that followed. It was occupied during the War of 1812, and because of its presence, the British did not attempt to sail into Beaufort Harbor, so it did its job, kept the British away. And unfortunately, after the War of 1812 ended, the Fort Hampton eventually was washed away by shore erosion. We still have shore erosion even to this day. But in back in these days of 1825, a, an early season hurricane washed Fort Hampton into Beaufort Inlet and it is gone. So here we are without a fort again. <laughs> but um, by this time the U.S. government had uh, realized a lot of the forts we had built were just not adequate. So the third system of forts came about and one of the forts uh, of this system was Fort Macon. So that's how we got from early days of trying of colonial defenses and so forth to having Fort Macon built. Yeah, no, we definitely need a fort. <laughs> Beaufort seems like a pretty hot spot. Mm -hmm. So what about after they built Fort Macon, like the first few years? From what I was reading in your book here, uh, Fort Macon and History, it seems like they were uh, doing some renovations, changing things up. Yes. Uh, the fort was uh, was actually built from 1826 to 1834, so it took eight years to build it mm -hmm. and cost almost half a million dollars even then. And a factoid that we always throw out to our visitors, how many bricks are in Fort Macon? Well, the actual construction figure is 9,233,412 bricks. Wow. <laughs> how did y'all figure that out exactly? That's the, according to the actual construction records from oh. the National Archives. Y'all still got those records? They were very meticulous in their, their <laughs> keeping track of everything that was built or, or bought or purchased and everything, and that is according mm -hmm. to the actual construction records. They still exist in the National Archives. Oh, cool. So I've held them in my hand. <laughs> but anyway, the fort was finished in 1834, and um, was garrison, had a, a garrison from 1834 to 1836, then did not have a garrison for a while. And we were still in periods of congressional cutback on the military, so um, uh, the fort wasn't always garrisoned. Now, if we had been a larger port like New York, Baltimore, or something like this, they had forts that were pretty much garrisoned all the time permanently. We were not, and so uh, some there were periods when Fort Macon had no garrison, you just had a caretaker looking after it. 
Well, in 1840, Captain Robert E. Lee, uh, who was, had not yet achieved all the fame that he would later in the war between the states, uh, he was a captain of engineers and was sent to Fort Macon to make an inspection of it. And uh, he determined there were a number of things that needed to be fixed up in the fort. There were some, uh, the magazines were too damp. These are you know, where you store your gunpowder mm -hmm. and ammunition. They were a little too damp, which would not be good in, a, in combat if your gunpowder is wet and everything. Um, the shore erosion was again threatening. It had already taken Fort Hampton earlier. We didn't want the same thing to happen in Fort Macon, so we needed to really get down and figure out some means of stopping shore erosion so Fort Macon wasn't also uh, washed away. And there were some other structural things around the fort that needed to be changed, some of the interior defenses and various things of that nature. So his report, which again is in the National Archives, I've held it in my hand, <laughs> uh, was quite comprehensive. And that sparked in 1842, uh, the beginning of a second phase of uh, construction and alteration and repairs and things like this. And so from 1842 to 46, the engineers came back and they did all these repairs. They began building jetties on the shore that Robert E. Lee had suggested. And of course, we have added to them over the years and they're still out there today. Uh, he did repairs to the magazines and, and all the other structural things and so forth. So uh, this kicked in another phase of repairs and alterations. So it sounds like they got a little bit more support over like those first two phases. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the fort was, was garrisoned uh, from 1842 to 1845 and uh, excuse me, 1844. And then again from 18, 48 to 1849. So it was only intermittently garrisoned over the years uh, and everything. Sometimes troops were there, sometimes just not. Sometimes you just had the caretaker. And it, if it was a period where they were working on the fort, then you had the engineers there doing their work. And then otherwise, there it sits. All right. So by my understanding, the fort was only ever actually part of one battle? Yes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. When the war between the states began, the local militia forces in Beaufort and uh, Moorhead City came over to take it over. The war's begun, we're going to need this fort. Well, at that time, no garrison, just a caretaker, Sergeant, poor old Sergeant William Alexander. Um, he was there unarmed, and the fort had been abandoned for a long time, and uh, the gun carriages that were there were rotten, and everything. He had no weapons to defend himself. He had his wife there with him, and here comes the local militia, like, oh, great. <laughs> so uh, everything worked out, though. He, uh, they were very kind to him. They allowed him to gather his stuff and, and leave, and so um, he didn't offer any resistance. He tried to persuade him, you know, this is, you're taking over a, a government fort. You're going to get in all this trouble and everything, and of course, the local militia is like, well, the war, hey, man, the war started, and we're going to take the fort. Sorry, so if you don't want to be here, bye. And so he was uh, carried back over to Beaufort with his wife and his belongings, and so that's how they got Fort Macon at the beginning of the war, taking away from an unarmed caretaker. <laughs> About as easy as it gets. Well, the Confederacy, uh, North Carolina and the Confederacy, then uh, armed the fort, made it ready for battle. The garrison fluctuated many times. You had large numbers of troops there at different points, but they finally uh, reduced the garrison down to five companies of heavy artillery and uh, approximately 403 Confederate soldiers. And of the five companies, two of the companies and part of a third were from Carteret County. 
So we had a lot of local boys over in the garrison of Fort Macon and everything. The commander uh, ended up, uh, there had several commander changes, but Colonel Moses J. White from Vicksburg, Mississippi, West Pointer, graduated second in his West Point class, and someone who had very terrible health and everything, and but uh, he was the commandant of Fort Macon when the Union finally showed up. So that's how the Confederacy kind of got the fort. They armed it, made it ready for battle. Uh, 54 cannons were brought in. Um, There had been a few cannons there already. They brought others from Charleston, Richmond, and 54 cannons total ready for the defense of the fort. And that was um, the situation when the Union forces inevitably came to capture Fort Macon. Now, the Union had put together an expedition called the Burnside Expedition, centered around Major General Ambrose E. Burnside, Union General, and a force of about 12,000 Union soldiers. They had a fleet of gunboats to protect them, and they were um, an amphibious force. They were on transport vessels. So they came down and entered the sounds of North Carolina, and uh, their objectives had several objectives. There was a large Confederate base on Roanoke Island. The old Lost Colony fame had a Confederate base on it. Uh, they also wanted to capture Newburn, which is the second oldest town, second largest town in North Carolina at that time, believe it or not. And then the third thing they wanted was Beaufort Harbor because if the Union had captured all this territory in eastern North Carolina, they needed somewhere to bring in supply ships with their reinforcements and their supplies and so forth so they could maintain the hold that they had mm-hmm. gotten on eastern North Carolina. So that harbor was very important, which means we got to deal with Fort Macon. So uh, Burnside's expedition sailed in January uh, entered Hatteras Inlet. February, they captured Roanoke Island, had a battle there. In March 1862, they uh, came up the Noose River. There was a battle below New Bern, very, very large battle, in fact, and uh, New Bern was then captured. So then, the Union forces having gotten all this territory and everything, the third objective was Fort Macon, and which would give the use of Beaufort Harbor. So their forces came down from New Bern, uh, they occupied what was then a little city west of Moorhead called Carolina City, occupied that, occupied Moorhead City, occupied Beaufort without resistance. And uh, the Confederates, of course, had pulled back into the fort. And ultimately, three demands to surrender were offered to Fort Macon. All were refused. So uh, there was nothing left to do but to lay siege to the fort, which meant you had to ferry all your soldiers, your artillery, your supplies, everything from the mainland here over to Bogue Banks and establish a camp and then you had to haul all that artillery and ammunition and stuff and advance up the beach till you came within range of Fort Mac and then you had to set up your artillery positions and all that kind of stuff. So that's what the Union forces did during uh, late March and April 1862 uh, laying siege to Fort Macon. So Fort Macon's over here, you got 403 Confederate soldiers in it, they're cut off, they're in the fort, that's it. <laughs> And Beaufort, Moorhead City, on Bogue Banks, here's all these Union soldiers. You're totally surrounded. There's a fleet of four Union gunboats in the ocean offshore. So you're totally surrounded like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is going to be bad. Well, the Union forces then were able to, after the last demand to surrender was offered, Union forces then opened fire with their artillery on April 25th, 1862, and proceeded to blast Fort Macon for 11 hours with artillery fire. 
they had three batteries of cannons firing at the fort stationed on both banks, and then they had the Union fleet, four gunboats offshore, firing at the fort at one point. And at another point, um, over by Harker's Island, General Burnside had come down with his flagship, towing some floating batteries, and there was another gunboat there, so uh, they tried to get the floating batteries to fire on the fort from the Harker's Island side. It didn't work for them, the, the sound was too rough, so they didn't really do much with that. The Union fleet didn't do much. The fort is meant for defense against naval mm -hmm. attacks. So, hey, no problem there. Guns of the fort hit two of the Union ships, and uh, the fleet commander decided after a very brief time, that's about enough of this nonsense. We're out of here. Turned his ships around, left the battle, didn't come back. So it was left to the Union artillery to do the job of subduing Fort Macon, which it was able to do. And when I tell this part a lot of people uh, you know during the uh, during my tours and presentations you know you'd say well Fort Macon eventually was captured well how did they get it did, why did they let the fort get captured what what could they do to you in a fort to make you surrender and give up and people just don't understand well the Union artillery was bombing the fort and the thing going for them was they had brought along a new type of cannon rifled artillery and this gets into a lot of stuff about cannons that most people don't really care about, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> the, uh, in those days, you had two types of cannons. You have the, the smoothbore cannons, as they're called, which fire the round cannonballs, and they go back to medieval times. Just before the beginning of this war, rifled artillery came along. And that's the type that we use today. If you look down the barrel of a rifle cannon, you got spiral grooves, uh, lands and grooves. You always hear that on crime shows and everything. Um, same thing with artillery, not just small arms. Firing elongated bullet-shaped projectiles. And once they came up with this, this is a tremendously powerful type of cannon. Very accurate. Longer range, greater hitting power, far superior to the old-style smoothbore cannons with round cannonballs they always think about. Well, the Union had three of these rifle cannons against Fort Macon, and they had two batteries of mortars, which were able to fire shells, fire them into the air, lob them into the air, and drop them down into Fort Macon. So uh, between the three of these art, you know, types of uh, artillery and everything, Fort Macon was, was subdued. The rifle cannons were able to penetrate and almost break through into the gunpowder, one of the gunpowder magazines. The Union knew exactly where to go because, guess what, it was a U.S. government fort before the war. They knew where everything was. So they knew where to hit on the wall to get to a magazine, and they were cracking the walls open. And in old, older type of artillery bombardments where you just had the smoothbore cannons, it would take days and days of battering to bust a wall down like Fort Macon. The rifle cannons were powerful enough that in 11 hours, they were cracking the walls open and about to break through, and break through at a powder magazine. So here's the Confederates on the receiving end thinking, oh my gosh, who knew this was gonna happen? And our gunpowder is here, and we're get, about to get blown up by our own gunpowder. Obviously, there was nowhere to move it. You can't stop the battle. What are you going to do? Well, very simply, the choice, give up or blow up. Well, you know which one they yeah. did. <laughs> With the ceiling cracking at the magazine, they realized, that's it, we're done. 
So at 4.30 that afternoon, the white flag went up and Fort Macon surrendered. That is why it surrendered, because these new cannons had enough power to, to break through and almost blow this place off the map. And when you think about it, that was part of something that would change military history and warfare forever because once they had cannons like this, it meant the end of using forts and castles. We'd had forts and castles for centuries. That was our big defense. Now we had developed cannons with enough power to destroy them. Wow. So obviously today in modern warfare, weapons have continued to develop. Do we use forts like Fort Macon anymore? No, they're obsolete. Warfare was changed forever. Well, that was the battle. The Union uh, forced the fort to surrender. The following morning, April 26, 1862, they formally marched in and took possession of the fort. Uh, the Confederates were released on parole of honor and were returned home. They had lost seven men killed and 18 wounded. Uh, the Union loss was very light, one man killed and three wounded. Of all the guns Fort Macon had, they didn't have mortars that were able to fire and drop shells into the Union artillery positions like the Union was doing to them, firing and dropping shells over the fort's walls. So they were not able to do a whole lot of harm to the Union batteries, but the Union, of course, with the array of artillery that they had, did a whole lot of damage to Fort Macon. It got hit almost 600 times and was badly damaged and about to blow up. So uh, that was the battle. That is why they surrendered. And, of course, once the Union had it, they repaired the damage, used it for the remainder of the war. And now they had Beaufort Harbor. I mean, all things considered, it sounds like the fort held up pretty well. It did the best it could with what it was facing. With what it was against. Yep. Yes, mm -hmm, it sure did. So, um, and like I say, the Union held it then after the war. Now, some of the later history of Fort Macon, if you want me to go into that, I'll... Um, the Union... Uh, held the fort for the rest of the war. Now, afterward, the fort was occupied through the Reconstruction period until 1877. It reverted back to just a regular U.S. Army garrison post, and it was continuously occupied from uh, the time it was captured up through 1877. During this Reconstruction period, it also was used as a prison, a federal penitentiary for the states of North and South Carolina for part of the Reconstruction. During Reconstruction, the fort was under martial law, and uh, there were, you know, the civil services like courts and things like that didn't, and uh, were not functional, uh, prisons were not functional, anything, the army was under control, in control, martial law and everything. So for the second military district, which included North and South Carolina, Fort Megan became the federal penitentiary for the prisoners or criminals or whomever that were um, that were arrested and tried and everything for it, making was the place of incarceration. And um, you had murderers, railroad robbers, highwaymen, um, thieves, all kinds of miscreants and everything. And also the Army's own troublemakers. There was a, a fairly large amount of Army court-martial cases, you know, their own troublemakers. All these people were lumped in together at Fort Macon. The highest prison population they ever had at Fort Macon was 120 convicts. And these guys were sentenced to hard labor, shackled with leg shackles, the ball and chain, the whole bit, armed guards, all that kind of stuff. So this was really some serious stuff here. 
when uh, North Carolina finally was readmitted back to the Union in 1868, then the courts and it, the law enforcement facilities were, were back in operation again. So uh, the, the civil prisoners were then turned back over to the state, and then Fort Macon continued to be used as a prison for, again, the Union armies, or the U.S. Army by that time, the U.S. Army's own troublemakers and so forth. So um, it was a prison uh, throughout the Reconstruction until the Fort Reconstruction ended and Fort Macon was deactivated in 1877. Prisoners were taken away, the garrison taken away, and you just had the caretaker again. <laughs> Poor old caretakers and everything. So the Fort Macon was under caretaker status till the Spanish-American War of 1898. And then it was occupied again. Uh, the engineers had to come back and fix the fort up for warfare again, um, while other more important forts at other more important harbors and so forth got new modern guns and so forth. Beaufort Harbor was not judged to be important enough to receive more modern guns. So what they did was they remounted some of the old Civil War guns that were still there. And uh, they had a garrison of, of a small contingent of troops uh, occupying the fort for a while. But then uh, it was a very interesting thing that, that took place in the Spanish-American War um, involving black soldiers. Um, in the Spanish-American War, North Carolina and two other states were the only states involved in the Spanish-American War that enlisted black soldiers and formed them into regiments with black officers. Hmm. Previously, um, black soldiers, of course, fought in all pretty much all the wars of the United States, but usually they were under command of white officers. This was the first time in U.S. history that uh, black officers were commissioned to command black troops, and North Carolina and two other states were the only ones to do that. The 3rd North Carolina Volunteers was this all-black regiment. Colonel James Hunter Young was the commander. And the regiment was sent to Fort Macon, and it served as the support troops for the fort itself. Uh, Colonel Young took over command of Fort Macon in July of, eight, of 1898. So he, as far as we know, is the first black officer to command a U.S. military post. And that was Fort Macon. Uh, so you had black troops there, uh, fine. The war was very brief, only several months long, and so then the troops were withdrawn and they went on to other camps and so forth and were finally mustered out. And Fort Macon returned to being a caretaker status. But we were the first uh, U.S. military post to have a black officer in charge. So very interesting, uh, very, very right. prominent. Um, Back to caretaker status after the 1898 turn of the century, the Army realized, yeah, we'll never need this fort again. And so they just basically turned it loose. They took the caretaker away and everything and abandoned the fort totally. It was not occupied during World War One. It was left to the elements. It was overgrown and just a terrible shape and everything. Uh, even in World War One, like I say, it was not not occupied again. Well, after World War I, uh, 
After all, World War I was the war to end all wars. It was the Great War and the war to end all wars. Well, we don't need all these old forts anymore and frontier Indian posts and all this other stuff. So the Army went through this huge process of getting rid of all these old military posts that it thought it would never need again. And Fort McKinley was one of them. It was, in 1923, it went on a list of surplus military property. And rather than let it be sold to some private interest or something like that, the state of North Carolina realized the historic significance of it. And they, um, they, the, the congressional leaders from North Carolina in Congress uh, put forth a campaign to uh, acquire Fort Macon for North Carolina. And they did so, they, succeed, they succeeded. Um, the fort was attached to a bill getting rid of all these old military posts and everything, but the writer was that uh, it would be given to the state of North Carolina for public purposes, as a park and so mm -hmm. forth, for the staggering sum of one dollar. <laughs> right. Sounds like a good deal. <laughs> yeah, very good deal. And they were successful in, in getting that uh, donated to, from the Army, the War Department, to North Carolina for, to use as a state park. So this happened uh, June 4th, 1924, and so our 100th anniversary of Fort Macon State Park will be coming up in a couple of years, oh, and we're sweet. planning a celebration of that. But anyway, um, so Fort Macon State Park, as it came to be, is actually the second state park of North Carolina. We had had uh, Mount Mitchell in 1916 became the first park. So the second park being Fort Macon in 1924. So you had a public park owned by North Carolina at each end of the state. They really didn't have, there was no park service in existence then. They stuck the parks under the forestry department and they still weren't able to do much with them. Uh, they remained, uh, Fort Macon remained overgrown and I think they did put some picnic tables out but the fort remained overgrown and, and nothing uh, was done with it, basically. They had a caretaker that would come over from Beaufort a couple of days a week and things like that. Then the Great Depression hit in the 1930s and you had an organization called the Civilian Conservation Corps. And this was a work organization that would take all these unemployed young men across the country and put them to work in organized, in organized camps and so forth doing public service projects and they were affiliated in a lot of ways with the National Park Service creating public parks. They created roads, they created dams, they built buildings. Um, so many things that we have today still exist from the Civilian Conservation Corps. But one of the things they did was they placed a civilian CCC camp, it's easier to say, <laughs> at Fort Macon to turn it into a, a functional park. Uh, the road from Atlantic Beach to Fort Macon State Park had been started but was uh, never finished. Well, they finished the road to get the public there. They cleaned the fort out. They restored parts of it. They built a house for a caretaker. They built a dock for boats. They cleaned the park up. They got it all fixed up. And uh, after they completed their work at the uh, toward the end of 1935, we, had, uh, we hired a caretaker and officially Fort Macon State Park opened May 1st, 1936. The governor came down and spoke and the whole bit, yay, so we're a state park now. We've got a road, the public came, the public came by boats as well as automobile. 
and so forth, and the park was very popular very quickly. Then came World War II, yay, and the Army returned, hey, we want our fort back. Oh, boy. I'm sure they weren't <laughs> expecting that. No. They had, in the, when Fort Macon was turned over to North Carolina, there was a provision there that if the U.S. government ever decided it needed the fort for any kind of purpose, they could lease it or take it back over, and this is what happened. They exercised their mm -hmm. option. World War II, the United States got into World War II. Um, they realized that, well, Beaufort Harbor still has some strategic value, a little bit, and uh, also we, they were building a naval base west of Moorhead City, a Navy section base, and of course the harbor and port facility and everything was useful, so the Army decided we're going to occupy Fort Megan again. So December 21st, 1941, three weeks after uh, the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, Army troops showed up again at Fort Megan, and it was occupied for war one more time. Uh, they brought in, put um, mo uh, mobile artillery batteries on the beach for harbor protection and so forth. Troops occupied the fort, lived in the fort. They lived in a camp around the fort and it was a, an active military facility once again. And here again, when I tell these, these things to my park visitors and tours and so forth, and they're looking at me like, why would you need this fort in World War II? And we think of World War II as being over there, Europe and the Pacific. And most people don't realize that German submarines, the U-boats, came across the ocean. They operated all along the entire eastern and Gulf seaboard of the United States, and they just slaughtered our ships by the dozen. North Carolina's coast uh, was one of the main operational areas for German submarines in World War II. We had something like 105 Allied and American ships sunk or damaged off North Carolina alone. And not knowing when we went into the war what we were going to face, we occupied not only Fort Macon, but all these various other military forts and posts all along the coast again, just because we had to be prepared for anything that might get thrown at us. Now the U-boats, the sub German submarines, of course, they concentrated on shipping and so forth, so forth. They never tried to sail into the harbor or shell the harbor defenses from offshore or anything like that, but we didn't know what fate would bring. So uh, that's why Fort Macon was occupied again. And a lot of people don't realize the ships, you know, you could they were close enough you could see them burning and floating up on the beaches would be oil and dead bodies and stuff like that. So the war was not just over there, it was right out here, it was right in our own backyard, and that's why the fort was occupied again. Um, they never had the opportunity to engage the U-boats, although the, the war was right out there, all kinds of stuff was going on. But uh, I guess you might say it served as a deterrent, uh, keep the U-boats, you know, make them keep their distance and so forth. At the end of the war, the Army... That was it. They departed. It was turned back over to North Carolina, and we have been a state park ever since. So we're one of the most visited of all North Carolina state parks now. We have an annual visitation of over a million visitors a year. So it is a popular place and brings a lot of people down here because it's very unique, has a very long, rich, and interesting history, mm -hmm. and so forth. So that's a little bit about Fort Macon. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. 
So if people were interested in learning more, where could they go to do that? Well, we have a, a website, friendsoffortmacon.org. Friends of Fort Macon is one word, and .org. Um, there are various uh, articles and things about the fort's history you can find there, uh, a lot of information about it. And um, you can always call our park office at 252-726-3775. We have various programs and stuff going on all the time. Um, guided tours of the fort are offered uh, from April to October. And thereafter, we'll have a, a guided tour at least once a day, uh, at 11 o'clock, um, through the winter and so forth. Uh, in the in season, we have uh, musket firing demonstrations, artillery firing demonstrations, and so forth. And we have an early New Year's Eve program. The New Year's Eve program will be the the last of our big programs for the year. Uh, early New Year's Eve at 7 o'clock on New Year's Eve, we will fire different uh, cannons of the fort and ring in the new year. Why 7 o'clock? Well, that is Greenwich, England, midnight, the first time zone of the, of the Western Hemisphere. And so uh, we that'll be the first uh, <laughs> Greenwich, England time and so forth. This is actually midnight for the Western Hemisphere for the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. People can come, uh, we'll have a band playing, and uh, we see the cannons fire ring in the new year, and then it's early enough that you can bring the kids, and then go on off after that to whatever parties or whatever you're going to be doing the rest of New Year's Eve. So that's kind of what we got coming up uh, on the horizon for the rest of this year and so forth. Got a few more tours, uh, we'll still be doing it for the remainder of the year, and then the early New Year's Eve program. All right, that all sounds great. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being here and recording this with me. Absolutely, glad to do it. And uh, come on over to Fort Macon, bring a fishing pole if you like or whatever. <laughs> but uh, we have uh, nature exhibits, we have fish, <laughs> have beach shells, and a historic fort with a lot of interesting history with it. So come on over. <laughs> made up two of two million three hundred and seventy nine five hundred and forty six bricks which is the most amount of bricks in a fort in the United States. I want to know who's counting all the bricks. I don't know. <laughs> like <laughs> how, whose job was it to how that? much of a pain were you? I mean, I couldn't imagine. Like, I, you couldn't pay me enough <laughs> to count the bricks. Was that while they were laying it afterwards? Because, oh, that's crazy. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's great to have these um, podcast topics because it's yeah. really showing us what else is. It's really about our county. Yeah, and, and that's and that a lot of our newcomers, especially with military, yeah. that are here. It's good to know what we are and what our community is about. So we will catch you on our next podcast coming up in two weeks. Right before the Christmas holiday. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. I can't believe it's upon us. It's there. We're already there. I know. <laughs> See y'all next time. Bye, guys.